there's some type of love for Eros fundamental to reality where it wants things to come together. Not only does it want things to come together, it wants things to come together in a way that produces greater complexity. Welcome to the New Age Sage Podcast, where you come to free your mind from all the things that keep you in suffering. Today's guest is Eric Godsey. You're going to love today's episode. We go deep into unlocking the mysteries of the universe. Please like and subscribe. Thank you. Eric, welcome on the show, man. I'm, I'm happy to have you here. I, I want to start talking about your your darkness journey. I saw you just got out of it recently. Yeah. So tell me all about it. Yeah, man. So probably about two years ago, I heard Aubrey Marquez talk about having done the darkness retreat. And I actually did a podcast with him where I kind of like interviewed him for his podcast and just kind of got a sense of what it was like. And after doing that podcast, I knew that I would eventually do one 100%. But that was like right before COVID started, Mm -hmm. you know, so it was about like two and a half years of whatever the fuck COVID was. (laughs) And it wasn't until just a couple of like probably about six months ago where I saw that there was a place stateside that was open. And it's called Sky Cave Retreats. And so I went and I checked it out and I saw that they had an opening in February And because I'm such a fan of Jungian psychology, when I heard that once you're in complete isolation from light for about five days, your pineal gland starts to activate, Mm -hmm. and then it starts to produce DMT at the levels that you have when you dream. And from that point on, until you are exposed to light, you will have a waking, like hallucinatory dream state Mm -hmm. for the entire time. And, you know, like, as the spiritual grandson of Carl Jung, I was like, I want to experience that as, like, an investigator. Yeah. Now, because of my schedule, I was only able to do four days. And so on the last day, I started to see the lights. It takes about six days for the lights to turn into the full-fledged visions. So I'm going to go back because I had a great time. Like, a lot of people who do it seem to really struggle. Um, I did not. And Why do you think you didn't? I think because I've spent so long trying to understand the unconscious, Mm -hmm. like the whatever the thing was that Carl Jung was trying to study because I've been trying to study that for so long. I've, I've developed a relationship with my mind where I trust it. I know how to flow with it. I don't fear anything as it, like, like I'm afraid of death. Mm-hmm. I'm afraid of someone breaking into my house and harming my fiance. But when it comes to the realm of my mind, I don't believe that anything is evil. I don't believe that anything is like a evil spirit outside of me. Mm-hmm. The lens that I use is that all, anything that can arise in my consciousness is of me. And anything that feels bad or evil or whatever is just a denied part of me that if I brought awareness to and compassion to, it would transform and reveal something. So step by step, take me from when, let's say you have a thought that is rooted in in fear or some kind of depression, negative emotion that's not, it's you, but it doesn't seem like the higher you. Right. 
what do you do in that moment to like bring it back to you or, or, or reduce the fear, reduce the negative yeah. negativity? Like what's the step-by-step -step you do in those moments? So because I've been working with unconscious for like 10 years now, a lot of, most of it is intuition. You know, like once you like play a sport for a really long yeah. time, you start to get an intuitive feel. And so it's much less like a step-by-step -step process. And it's much more just like, yeah, yeah. like the instantaneous knowing is, oh, this is a neglected part of me. And I've um like I've been interpreting dreams for so long now that when I have dream content come up, it tends to almost instantly reveal itself because I have an intuitive grasp of what the language of dreams are. But if I were to try to imagine what I was like like eight years ago, and if I had to try to like create a step by step, the first one would be if it arises in my consciousness, it is a part of me. Like that's kind of like step one. So it's the frame. Mm -hmm. Like I've never had an experience where that frame didn't work and help me. So I've never had an experience of a quote unquote external ghost. I've never had an experience. I've had one experience of an alien and, and we can talk about that at some <laughs> point if we want to. But like whenever I've done ayahuasca, whenever I've done breath work, whenever I've done like a high dose of any type of psychedelic, it's just flat out. This is a part of me. Mm -hmm. So that's step one. Step two is one of the things that you learn in dream interpretation is that like one of the most common types of dreams is people are being chased or it feels like someone's trying to murder you or someone's trying to rape you or someone's trying to like break into your house or whatever. If you can teach the dreamer to turn towards the thing that they're running from, the, the same type of experience always happens. The monster or the murderer, or the rapist, or whatever it is, it tends to transform into like a, a injured person, a handicapped person, a elderly person, a sick person, or some type of injured child. Yeah. Because it is a part of you that was injured, that you've been neglecting, and it's chasing you as it's trying to make contact yeah. with you. So step two is to face it, is to actually like take your awareness and like bring light to whatever the thing is because people's it's really interesting but if you have an emotion that you don't want to feel and you try to ignore it that's almost like that's how you can guarantee that it will stay mm -hmm. whereas if you bring your awareness to it like the nature of any content of consciousness is it's not stable yeah so if you actually bring your awareness to it it tends to actually change and transform and reveal step three is um, are you familiar with internal family systems? Yeah, well, it's like parts of you. Exactly. So, like the, the party that's coming up in the moment is designed to a history of helping you, helping you kind of deal right. with the issue. Yeah. That whatever part arises in you, it thinks it's helping you, yeah. but it also thinks that you're younger than you are. Mm -hmm. And if you start to ask it, "How old do you think I am?" it'll say like twelve. And then you ask yourself, "Well, what happened when I was 12? And it's yeah. like, "Oh." This thing happened with this person at school, and so this part of me was born to protect me from people's judgment or whatever. Yeah, I, had to, I had to use all that to figure out my, my bipolarity. I was diagnosed bipolar. Mm -hmm. Doing all that helped me realize, oh, okay. 100%. Yeah. And we could go down the rabbit hole of all of those diagnostic yeah, statistic yeah, labels. Yeah. yeah, but so the third step is to do parts work and to relate to any part of me like it's a child. Like it's one of my children and I'm a good father. 
You know, like, so how would I relate to that? Like, if your child came to you and was screaming, what would the most ideal father that you could possibly imagine having, how would that father respond to that child? And then the kind of, like, overall rule is I trust my unconscious. So... I've been lucky enough to have the type of life where even though I've taken a bunch of drugs, the like stability of my mind has been such that I completely trust my unconscious. I trust whatever it brings to me. I trust that it's smarter than me. I trust that if my ego learns to listen and bow to it, that I experience grace. And so that... Those would kind of be the steps that I would offer. But really the key one is not to get caught in this weird, like, to each their own. But I do not resonate with any of the spiritual beliefs that, like, there are outside entities that are, like, attacking us or, like, like I don't believe that I can be cursed. Mm-hmm. And so I've I've never had the experience where it has felt like, oh, I'm cursed. Yeah. And it's just, like... The realm of the mind is so dynamic that it's like, yes, whatever you want to create as your inner story, it'll just be like, cool, go for it. Mm-hmm. You know, like if you want to believe that there's evil spirits trying to harvest the energy of humans on earth through their fear, your unconscious will be like, cool, let's play that game. Yep. And what I have found in my life is if you, don't subscribe to that game. It's not, you know, like I've never had an experience where it's broken the Jungian lens of, oh, this is a part of me. Yeah. And the the root of it, and this is where whenever I try to explain this to like my spiritual friends, this is the gap that doesn't really land. The immensity of what I see as the unconscious realm is large enough to encapsulate all types of experience. Mm -hmm. So aliens, ghosts, evil spirits, ancestors, all that shit. Like all of that shit for me can fit inside of that realm of the unconscious. So that's what I would offer there. Mm -hmm. And one of the, like the reason why the darkness was easy for me, or at least what I hypothesize why it was easy was, um, I'm not afraid of my mind, mm-hmm. you know? I actually feel like I'm good friends with it. And I act, like I feel like my ego is this like, what's the right way to, it feels like almost like my ego is like a dog in the ocean that's just like trying to stay above water and my unconscious is a whale that loves the dog. Mm-hmm. You know? uh, so in I've read Man in the Symbol, it's only Carl Jung with a book. I've read and in it, what you're describing now is this like categorization of the unconscious, like this diff this like alternate force in your system that is working for you and with you to like help you see where you're not free in a way. So I want to hear you go into like what you think that force is and where it comes from mm-hmm. and why we have it. That's a big question, and that's why we do the podcast. So um Carl Jung has this quote where he says, and it's a long quote, and so I won't get it uh, completely right, but the essence of it is, if we would try to personify what the unconscious is, the unconscious would be 
a two million year old animal that has lived every type of human life, that has been a king, a queen, a slave, a magician, a jester, a farmer, a son, a daughter. It would have experienced all the seasons of life. It would have experienced cataclysms and bountiful harvests. It will have died thousands of times, so it knows what death is, it knows what birth is. And its, its core goal is to help you continue to grow. It is the same force, so that was what Jung said, mm -hmm. well, and then I'll go into what I think. And the, at the end of that quote, what he talks about is, and unfortunately, or fortunately, that thing dreams. Like, one of the things that we don't appreciate because it's so close to our experience is what the fuck is happening when you dream? Mm -hmm. When you dream, the thing that you think you are vanishes into sleep. And then some other thing is able to imagine so viscerally that your ego then just pops into what feels like a physical world. There's something in you that creates worlds every day. And those worlds seem to be created in such a way that if you learn how to listen to it, it's created for you to try to teach you shit. And if you take a moment to think about what the fuck is going on, that there can be something in you that can teach you things that you don't know. That's God. Like... That, for me, is a pathway to divinity that is so close to our experience that we have the audacity in the modern time to say, oh, that's just a, a random process of the brain trying to integrate what it learned in the previous day and has no meaning. It's just like, I want to roll my eyes so hard that the tissue attached to it snaps off because that's just, it's so, to me, uh, stupidly arrogant to think that this thing that all mammals seem to have to do and that you will die quicker from not being able to get into REM sleep than from not drinking water. Mm -hmm. I was like, this is, this doesn't mean anything, but, um, there seems to be a force or a will almost driving evolution. So you, like, there is some force that brings atoms together that when they come together, it produces molecules. We give that shit a name, like we call it electromagnetism, or we call it gravity, and then we just pretend like we understand, like, what that phenomenon actually is. But I think from a mythic lens, you could say there's some type of love or eros fundamental to reality where it wants things to come together. Not only does it want things to come together, it wants things to come together in a way that produces greater complexity. So when atoms come together, they can produce a molecule, which is something that's fundamentally more complex than an atom. Molecules eventually give way to proteins, proteins give way to fucking tissues and tissues up to organs and organs and animals. And then we get all of the diversity that happens on this planet. But the metaphor that Carl Jung was most 
like his favorite one to use was the idea of when you take an acorn and put an acorn in soil, there's something in that acorn that its entire magnum opus is to turn that acorn into an oak tree. There is something in that acorn that knows it ought to be an oak tree. And, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that it has a conscious will, but there, there is some informational structure that is taking that acorn, absorbing all the nutrients, and then starting to fold proteins in a way to produce a fucking oak tree. Mm-hmm. And that we have that same thing in us. That the moment we're born, there seems to be like a blueprint or like a God print pressed onto our core of what we are meant to become. And in uh, like in the Bhagavad Gita, this idea is called your dharma. Your dharma is like the sacred task that you are meant to offer the world through what you are. And the Greeks called this force the daimon. The daimon is um, like Socrates was said to have been the wisest person in Athens because he listened only to his daimon. And the daimon is this like guardian spirit that sits on your shoulder that knows your fate, which would be like the oak tree that you're meant to become. And it whispers to you. And we all know what this is like like we all know what that whisper in us is like when it's like you should move to austin and start a podcast mm-hmm. or um you should leave this relationship or you should start that business or you should go talk to that person how can we differentiate differentiate that from the ego the first one so there's a couple of things here one try run the experiment and just listen to what happens. But what, what I have found is that if the whisper that comes through either pumps me up and talks about how great I am or attacks me and talks about how small I am, ego, or judge, but not the whisper that we're trying to track. If the whisper that comes through doesn't surprise me and if it doesn't scare me, I tend to classify that as ego. The hallmark of the whisper that I try to track mm. that I think is an emanation of this forest, you know, that turns the acorn into the oak tree is does it at first excite me and then scare me? So like there's like a spectrum of like, oh, and does it surprise me? Mm. If it surprises me and it scares me. But the the fear I'm trying to articulate here is it's not like. If you have a thought that, okay, if I don't lock the door four times in a row, my mom will die. Mm-hmm. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is it's like, oh, I should jump off this ledge into the water right now. Like, it's that type of fear. It's that like, you know, it's almost like if I, if I were braver, this would be awesome. But I'm not, so I'm afraid. Yeah. So there's that. And then if it surprises me. And then the third one is that if it comes as like a simple, straightforward, like, um, statement. So like, go here, do that. That's at least how it arises for me. If it's anything else, 
tends to be ego. But the thing that I want to make really clear is ego's not bad. There is a big, uh, what's the right word? There's a, there's a lot of traps in the spiritual times now. And one of those traps is to demonize the ego or to think that the ego equals bad. I have literally stood before people who have told me, quote, I don't have an ego. And it's like, who is the I that just <laughs> said that sentence? And it's just, but like, your ego is what allows you to not shit your pants. Your ego is what allows you to drive. Your ego has saved your life if you've ever been in a high pressure type of life or death moment where you had to make a instinctual reaction to get out of the way of a car or whatever. Uh, sorry, Ryan Holiday. The ego is not the enemy. <laughs> now, the people that Ryan Holiday wrote his book for are people who weren't doing a, anything spiritual, and they were, you know, like the titans of industries. And yeah, their ego is probably ruining their lives. <laughs> but for spiritual people, I think the reverse is the thing that needs to be cultivated. And what the metaphor that I offer people is that the ego is like a wolf. And it's a wolf you can't get rid of. You cannot get rid of. If you don't exert your alphaness, for lack of some other term, over this wolf, it will dominate your house and be insecure. Because anyone who has a dog, if you don't establish that you're the pack leader, mm -hmm. so like if you treat that dog like, oh, you're my cute little baby, you know, that dog will tend to have behavioral issues. It will tend to be more anxious than other dogs that have like a pack leader as the human in the house. They'll tend to bite. They'll tend to, you know, piss and shit and steal food. I know people who, for whatever reason, can't be stern with their dogs and their dogs. I don't let them bring their dogs over. <laughs> then I have a friend who has hunted with his dog since his dog was a puppy and he is so sweet to that dog but whenever that dog starts to get whenever that dog starts to get out of control he will in a way that's completely calm grab its mouth and just like bring his head right to her head and just be like no and she stops and all the rest of the time, he's super sweet with her. He'll feed, you know, he'll play outside with her. He takes her on walks. The most well-behaved dog I've ever met, period. And that's the dog that made me fall in love with dogs. What most people in the spiritual community do is they, they like, they might not realize it, but they hate their wolf. And they try to starve their wolf. And they like lock the wolf in a room in the back. And that wolf... The moment you're weak will bite you. And so I think that the, like, when it comes to, like, the whispers, there's the whispers of this, like, oak tree forest, and there's the whispers of the ego. Listen to the ego, too. Be a good queen or king of your inner world. And it's like, there are things that your ego needs to be fed, but know that you are the pack leader. You know, it's kind of like the thing that I try to offer people. And God, it, one of the most exhausting places to be are spiritual places where the implicit or explicit story is ego is bad. Because it's, you can just see everyone starving wolf at the edge of the room just yeah. waiting for their moment to come in. Yeah.
Yeah. For sure. In your beautiful explanation, it hit so much harder because it was a, it was a story. You put it into a, a myth that I could relate to. Why do we absorb morals or, or lessons so much harder in mythology? What's that, the role that plays in human life? Like, Why do we love stories to give us what we need to hear to grow in a way? Well, this is another huge question. You're asking good questions. Okay, so... Um, where to start so stories are spells mm. stories are magic stories like law is a story all governmental structures are stories uh schools a story capitalism is a story all of these are without the human capacity for language and story we wouldn't have any of these things our civilization lives atop stories. Mm -hmm. All of our religions are stories. And if that's yeah. triggering to you, buckle up. And I don't mean you, I mean people who are listening. And um, the essence of a story, why this is the case, you know, don't know. And I could go down rabbit holes trying to explore why I think that might be. But the magic of a story is that if you're a good storyteller, the person kind of gets hypnotized. That's just kind of like the essence of like a good story is you, people start to attune to you. They also will put themselves in the position of the character in the story. So whoever the hero is, if you're a good storyteller, people will put their experience, their perspective of life inside of that character. A character inside of a story implies a god in the sense of there's some world structure that the character is acting out in so any story that you can ever imagine the way the character acts and the responses from the story to the character's actions implies that there's some type of world order we really like that and Whatever the character learns in a story, because we've taken on the perspective of the, of the character, we, we learn those lessons too. And the essence of a story is that it implies an ethic. And what that means is that the interaction of the character and the environment or the character and the villain or whatever, whatever the results are, imply an ethic. It implies how one ought to be. Mm -hmm. You know, so like a tragedy implies how not to be. Yeah. A, you know, in the classical Greek terminology, a comedy, which is just like a story that's not a tragedy, implies how one ought to act. But there's also something, and it's probably because we've been telling stories for so long that we remember them more easily than things that aren't in the container of a story. Music and story are very likely the ways that we created culture for thousands of years before we had writing. And what the, the like pinnacle of the storytellers were the bards. And they were the ones who could tell a story and sing the story in a way that rhymed like a poem. And one of the reasons why they did that is that it allowed them to remember vast amounts of information. 
And so like the like walking libraries before we had written words were these people who knew stories, knew how to sing and turn those stories into poems. And many of our most ancient poems, like, you know, the Iliad, for example, is hundreds of lines. And these bards would memorize them. And the only reason they were able to is because they were inside of the form of story and inside of the form of poetry. No matter who you are, no matter how rational you think you are, the majority of your life is built atop stories. You, everyone has a favorite story. And what I have found through my podcast, The Myths That Make Us, the core question that I ask that has been absolutely um, just such a treat to be able to see it unfold again and again and again. If you ask people, what was your favorite story as a child? What was your favorite movie as a child? Whatever they tell you, then ask them, if you were to retell this as a bedtime story to a smart 10-year-old, can you tell it to me like you would tell it to that 10-year-old? What I have found, I'd say 99% of the time, is the way the person retells their favorite story to a smart 10-year-old like it's a bedtime story is the myth that they are living right now in their life. And there's something about that to me that's like. How do you explain that? Like the unconscious being drawn to a certain story. Right. It's a crazy thing to think about. Because I have the same, like, I hear that. I have the same thing. My, the movie I love the most explains my life as a kid. So it's like, I always think about, like, what in me right. magically decided to grab this VHS at Blockbuster. Right. Put it in, and then that was my life. Yeah. So there's, um... I don't know what the right words for it would be, but I'll offer two potential ways to look at it. One is, I guess, causal. And the other one is, that I like more, is magical. So you could say that because stories are so potent, that whatever story we stumble upon that we tend to like when we're young, it then structures our attentional systems in a way where it kind of creates a causal chain of oh we're more likely to do this thing because it reminds us of that movie that we watched and so it's more like you're a random chanced biological machine that stumbled onto a story and that story then structured the way that you interacted with reality for the rest of your life um don't buy it but i'll offer that anyways so what I believe, and it's going to take a little bit more to explain this, but I think it's worth it, is that um, Plato, the philosopher, uh, his magnum opus, like his great work, was called the Republica, and that was his attempt to articulate how to create the ideal culture. And at the end of that book, the very last chapter, he writes a myth called the myth of Ur, E-R. And that myth, I won't tell the whole myth here. You can go check out, you know, I did a YouTube video on it that explains it. But that uh, essence of the myth is that it's the birth of the idea. And it's the birth of the use of the term, the daimon, as a guardian spirit that knows your fate and helps you live out your fate. Mm -hmm. So a quick overview of the myth is a 
a hero dies and gets to see what happens after we die. And then he's brought back and he tells all the people what happened. And the essence of what happens when we die is anyone who comes and reincarnates on earth, they've come here to acquire wisdom. Before they came to earth, they picked a golden thread that had their fate in it. But the knowledge of their fate was too heavy to bring back into a body. So they have to drink from the river of forgetting to forget their fate. And after they drink, the goddess of fate gives them a little guardian spirit that knows the path that they're meant to go on. And then they get a body and then they come here to learn. You don't get to choose what you're interested in. Something beyond your consciousness chooses for you. You don't get to choose what you're attracted to. You don't get to choose who you're in love with. What I would offer is that 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 imprint chooses for you. It's watching your life with you, and it knows the things that tune with what with the oak tree that you're meant to be. And so one of the things that that inner force is watching out for are stories. Because stories are like maps for how to be in the world. And because, they, because that force knows what you're meant to be, it's looking for a good map. The moment it finds it, it grabs your attention on it. Like you don't get to choose. And I think that this is something that, again, it's like dreams. It's so close to us that we can miss it. But you don't get to choose what stories you love. Something in you chooses for you. And like, when you really feel into that, like it makes me cry because it's that magical to me. And so when you're young, everyone I've ever done an interview with from my podcast, and I've asked this question to a bunch of people outside of the podcast, and it's just, it's over and over again. It seems to be very clear. We find a story when we're young that we don't know why, but it, it just, it's like, I love this. And children will demand that that book be reread or they will rewatch that movie dozens of times. Like uh, I helped take care of my sister who was 10 years younger than me. And she watched Finding Nemo a hundred times when she was two. Fast forward to her being 20, I think 20 now, 22 actually. Um, Her biological father left when she was young the essence of finding nemo is about the dad trying to find their son like there was something deep in her that could feel the archetypal yearning for you know i wish my father would come look for me Mm -hmm. you know and it's like the beauty that i've gotten to at you know, the age that I am now, because when I was young, it was like, I was a hardcore atheist and atheism implies there is no mystery. Mm-hmm. I've gotten to a point now where I'm old enough to recognize it is all mysterious. And to have a relationship with the fundamental mis- like mystery and awe of what the fuck this all is. It's a lot more fun to live that way. And so like the unconscious. And I think this goes back to why the darkness was easy for me was like, I'm okay with being with the mystery and just being like, I don't, I don't know, but I'll hang out with you. You know, 
Hey, one one part of the mystery that I'd love to explore that it's always funny trying to figure out a mystery because it loses its magic, right? It's this weird conundrum. I'm trying to logically pick apart what this magic is and it loses the magic in the process. One thing I often think about is I think towards the end of Man and the Symbols, again, I may be butchering it because I'm not as, as well-versed as you in, the, in this field, but towards the end of it, it's something about how the unconscious is like a, the quantum field, where the quantum field will just like reproduce things in, in our environment. The unconscious can just produce, our unconscious can just produce things outside of us to like synchronicity wise to like right. show us something like how have you wrapped your head around that or started to think about that like our unconscious just like makes things appear yep. for, for us to teach us something like yeah that's, a whole other, that's beyond dreams and, and stories it's a whole another another level of you are asking all the big questions dude so congratulations <laughs> on doing good research and finding like the hardest questions to attempt to answer for people who are into Jungian psychology but so like, most people don't know this, but Carl Jung is the dude who kind of coined the term synchronicity. Mm-hmm. And he wrote a little book, you know, like an essay on it. I've read it twice. I still don't understand it. <laughs> but my my best attempt at trying to make sense of what he was talking about was um, that forest inside of the acorn that drives it to be an oak tree, uh, what the Greeks would call the daimon. The way it seems Jung sees that thing is that the full immensity of what that force is, is not contained in space-time. Mm. And the image that I used, and I don't know if this is technically accurate, like if you're a string terrorist, you might say that this is not what the fifth dimension is like, but the way that I imagine it is, um, if if you were a fifth-dimensional consciousness and you looked at a human that was confined into the first four dimensions of uh space and the three dimensions of time or no the three dimensions of space and the dimension of time what you would see when you would look at a human is you would see this snake-like thing and the start of the snake would be the zygote where the two where your dad's sperm and your mom's egg met that's the start of this snake and then the snake moves all over the world, you know, and it's this big, long thing. And wherever you're at right now is almost like the neck. It's the neck of this snake. Mm-hmm. And then there's all these timelines in front of the neck of the possible places that you could go. But they're like, they're like a wave particle before it's observed, you know, like when it's quantum. And I try not to go too far into the quantum shit just because, like, I don't know what I'm talking about <laughs> when I go there. But so if you imagine the from a fifth dimensional consciousness, if you imagined a human, it'd be this long snake thing. And then in front of the present moment are all of these tendrils of the timelines that you could claim based off of the choices you make. That fifth dimensional entity can see all of those timelines and knows which ones will bring you to what you're meant to be. And it seems as if when we're at potent times in our life where there's choices before us, from Jung's standpoint, that fifth dimensional consciousness will come into the four-dimensional space and try to give you a hint or try to give you a wink 
or try to give you some type of miracle that doesn't make sense. But maybe it'll come and give you like an illness too. You know, like yeah. it's it's coming in. And what Jung observed, and I've observed in my own way many times in my life, is that when someone, when you're talking with someone and you're getting to a really strong emotional place in them, and not like they're angry, but like you're making contact with like a thing that if they were to experience or feel or process, it would change the course of their life. It seems to be like the timing of external reality will produce an event that is perfectly linked with what's happening to that person in a way where anyone who witnesses it feels awe, mm -hmm. feels God. So one famous example that Jung has is that he was doing dream work with a woman for many weeks, and one of her recurring dream images was a Egyptian scarab, that type of beetle that kind of like glows and is mm -hmm. kind of like emerald looking. He was doing these dream interpretations in his office, I believe in Switzerland. He had the window open. The Egyptian scarab insect flew into the office while he was working with her and they were both just like oh my god and like that was an insect that was not often in that environment around them when i was in the darkness i had a pretty big insight where i spoke something out loud that i want to claim you know going into the future and i heard the moment i claimed it i heard a huge snapping sound of wood breaking in the fireplace the fireplace had not been lit for like 18 hours. And at no point in the four days when I was in the dark did a piece of wood snap when the fire wasn't going. That to me was a very clear synchronicity. Mm -hmm. And it's like, I don't know how that shit works. Um, I don't think Jung knows how it worked either. But what it seems, what seems to happen, especially if you work with people on their unconscious content enough, you will find that every once in a while, like the essence of what a synchronicity is, is when a external phenomena happens in perfect timing with a internal state that the instant subjective experience of it is that they were linked and that it's a confession of something beyond a random universe. Yeah. And that it's, it's a subjective experience. And in order to get rid of it you have to gaslight yourself mm -hmm. like it's that strong of an experience and so real quick if you check your phone 40 times a day and you happen to see 222 <laughs> not a synchronicity you know and i'm sorry to break it to the people who like to screenshot their phones and talk about oh you know but like if you're talking about a like a red dress that came in a dream and the essence of that dream was like, oh my God, I'm going to leave this job. As you utter the words out loud to your friend, I'm going to leave this job. You see someone in an all red tracksuit walking a dog on the other side of the road. That would be like a, whoa, yeah. you know? And I don't know what it means, but it's some of the most beautiful experiences of my life have been those type of experiences. Yeah, same here. It's an interesting topic because, you know, if things aren't going my way, if I'm in victim mode or I feel entitled, the ego me loses all belief in the magic. Mm. I kind of go back into the 
part of me that's like, oh, fuck this, nothing matters, the nihilist in me. But when that magic occurs, once yeah, my internal world and the external are just synced like that, where I see a clear sign of synchronicity, in that moment, I automatically just believe in God. It, some mm-hmm. Something bigger than me. I'm just like, this awe-inducing sensation where I'm just like, whoa, everything is, is magical. It's exactly. A, it's, a, it's a beautiful experience. And kind of segueing back, I, I want to touch a bit more on the, the daemon and what's the cost of not listening to the whispers? Yeah, so this is a great question. Um, as audacious as it will sound to people who haven't listened to my work in the past, if this is the first time they've heard me talk, I think every, I'd say 99% of the disorders in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual for Mental Health are the results of us denying the whispers of the daemon, or the daemon, depending on how you want to pronounce it. Uh, something that people don't know is uh, every disorder that is in the Diagnostic and Statistic Manual, there has not been a single scientific study that has found a genetic cause for any of those disorders. All of those disorders were, were put forward with the belief that we would eventually find studies that would discover the genetic cause. Because most people believe that those disorders are diseases, and the definition of a disease is that it has a biological cause. Mm-hmm. And uh, there are a plethora of books that people could read to completely destroy the lie that we have been told that any of these mental disorders are the cause of a chemical imbalance in the brain. Yep. Um, this, is, this is such an interesting place because most people, if you ask them what causes depression, They'll say, you know, like you don't have enough of some chemical in your brain. I've been in too many debates about that one thing. <laughs> right. People get super triggered. Yeah. So what's wild is that if you read the right books, and the main book is called Anatomy of an Epidemic by Robert Whitaker. This is a award-winning journalist from the Boston Globe newspaper who wrote a book like 10 years ago on the history of psychiatric meds, uh, how well they work, and what happens when you take them for a long time. And the end of that book, he has a debate at Harvard with one of the leading psychiatrists of the time. Again, this was about 10 or 12 years ago. And Robert Whitaker puts forth all the evidence that shows there has not been a single scientific study that has shown that there is that a chemical imbalance of any sort that can be measured creates depression or schizophrenia, and he's, talk, and he's debating with a Harvard psychiatrist in a hospital that is connected to Harvard. And what the psychiatrist says is, yeah, we've never believed that. And he's talking about us as like the field of psychiatrists. We've never believed that like it's just the lack of this causes this. And Robert Whitaker was like, well, then you need to go tell the American people that because none of them know that. Mm-hmm. So the the situation that we're in right now in our country is that because of the massive opportunity that the pharma companies had to produce propaganda before there was the internet, so this was mainly in the late 80s and early 90s, they were able to spew so much propaganda through their commercials that the majority of people believe that what scientists believe is that depression and anxiety and things like that are caused 
by a chemical imbalance. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you're able to speak the language of science and you talk to any, to 99% of psychiatrists alive right now, if you ask them, is depression or these other psychiatric conditions caused by a chemical imbalance, they would say no. You've never believed that. Like, that's where they've gotten to in their defense, especially in the wake of books like Anatomy of an Epidemic. So, there is no biological cause to any of these disorders. Why are they happening? And also, we live in a time where every year we're producing more psychiatric meds and more people are being diagnosed with having mental disorders. Mm -hmm. So that's the inverse correlation that doesn't make any fucking sense. We are prescribing more and more people are still getting sick. Mm -hmm. My hypothesis, and um, there's like a whole bunch of books I want to offer so it doesn't just sound like it's me on a couch being like this is, but my hypothesis is that all of the ways that our consciousness is able to quote unquote get squirrely on us are the result of us not knowing how to listen and act on behalf of that whisper that is in us. The function of elders in most cultures were to teach the adolescents and the adults how to be in harmony with that voice. We don't have elders in our culture. And we also live in a time with no coherent ethic. We have no world religion. You know, like with the rise of science, we have killed any type of attempt for a monotheistic religion. And so the result of that is we live in a time where 300 million people are disabled, meaning they legally can't work because of depression. You best believe almost all of those motherfuckers are on antidepressants yet are still disabled. And so anyone who is paying attention can look at that and see, oh, that's a tremendous amount of evidence that everything that we've been told about what causes a depression is bullshit. There's 450 million people who are diagnosed with a mental disorder. And these are just people in the Western world that we can like track. And then it's something like 37 million people die per year from what's called diseases of civilization, which are deaths from chronic illnesses that didn't exist, you know, like 100 years ago. And I think all of that is evidence that we're living in a time where we have so fundamentally misunderstood what it means to be a human. We have completely fundamentally misunderstood what, like, how the daimon in us speaks to us. And we have fundamentally misunderstood, like, um, what our place in the world is. And what I mean by that is that the dominant story of our time is that you are a randomly produced biological car. And if something is wrong with you, it's just because of chance. And we have the spare part come by from us. Oh, by the way, you have to take this spare part every day for the rest of your life. Oh, and then this spare part fucks up that part. So then we'll give you this. And I think like that a person who starts to take any type of psychiatric med will end up a lifetime customer. I was on about 10, a few years ago. 10. Yeah. yeah. So the thing, yeah. That's my whole my story. That's my story. But I was on about 10, three years ago. 
So the thing that happens is, yeah. Yeah. yeah, like it, when I read the stories, like it's making my eyes water now. It makes me so goddamn mad that, especially if you get on these psychiatric meds when you're young, what tends to happen is that they fuck up so much other shit in your body you have to then take a bunch of other things to deal with all the other things and you get yeah, people to me it was i was put on antidepressant and i was like it's not working double the dose it's not working double the dose oh it's not working you have adhd adderall it's not working you have panic disorder xanax it's not working uh maybe bipolar lithium it's not working increase all the doses that was my life for years until i was like and i I got to a point where the only thought I could have was to kill myself, literally for weeks of my life. The only thing I could think. That's probably my, my Damon screaming at me. And that's what it took for me to just like pop them all off, but almost killed me. Um, so very, I, I, my heart is very happy to hear what you're saying because it's important. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think, do you know what lobotomies are? I think so, but clarify it. Yeah. So for people listening, a lobotomy, Lobotomy is when you take a special type of ice pick and you stick it up a person's nose and then you hook their prefrontal cortex and you rip it out of their nose. And that was a procedure that was invented about 100 years ago that won the Nobel Prize because people who were deeply psychotic, when you did that to them, they relaxed or appeared to have relaxed to the people who were trying to, you know, keep them orderly inside of a prison that was called a mental institution. Yeah. And the people who first invented the lobotomy got such good responses from people who ran hospitals that they got in buses and they went all over the country to all these mental hospitals and they did their lobotomies on people and they won the Nobel Prize. A hundred years later, we can look back and see that was barbaric that was stupid, that was not ethical, that was not okay, and we're not going to do shit like that. I believe so deeply in my heart that 100 years from now, we're going to look back at how we have treated mental sure, illness yeah. and look at these psychiatric meds, and we will see it as a worse blunder than the lobotomies because of how many people it got into and what we're just starting to learn um, a psychiatrist out of Harvard last year published a book called Brain Energy. His name is Christopher Palmer. And what he is finding is that he's making the argument that all mental disorders are at root due to a metabolic injury. And that when your metabolism is deeply injured, the expression of your unconscious drives start to get really chaotic and loud and jumbled. And that Many psychiatric meds that we take actually further injure your metabolism, especially antidepressants and anti-anxiety meds. And so what he's arguing is that we live in a culture right now that because of the type of foods that we eat, the type of clothes that we wear, the, the type of soaps and shit that we use around our house and just the type of environments that we live in, our metabolism is deeply injured, which causes, or it, I wouldn't say cause, but like a high correlation with schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, depression, mm -hmm. anxiety, eating disorders, all that shit. And that most of the meds that we take to try to help those things, what he is finding in his research is they further injure your metabolism. Yeah. 
So I think in a hundred years, we're going to look back at what we're doing and it's going to be worse than what we were doing with lobotomies. The caveat that is important to offer whenever I get into this is um, it is dangerous to risk getting off of all of your meds on your own cold turkey. So I did. Don't do it. Right. Um, <laughs> I recommend it. There are people, most of the people that I know who did it that way, they all say the exact same thing. It was like, it's the hardest thing I've ever done. I, bet, I would I, never want to experience it again. Shit, no, the hardest thing I've experienced. Yeah. For sure. There are ways and there are options. One I would offer to people is Kelly Brogan is a psychiatrist who specializes in helping people get off of their meds. And that if you're someone that this genuinely calls to you, you could go check out that resource. But the thing that I want to be really clear on is that um, I try my best to be unbiased about this shit because fundamentally what I care about most is people not killing themselves. It's kind of like the core. And so like whatever the, the, the truth is, is what I'm interested in. Or going crazy and harming others with the right. medications. Yeah. And so what I found in the research is that the one place where psychiatric meds tend to work is if you're the most severe case of either depression or anxiety or whatever, where you're like a day away from killing yourself. So like if, if you're at that highest score on the type of test that we have to take like an antidepressant or anti-anxiety for less than six months as a way to transition into doing things that will actually help. It's really good in that expression. You know, like the analogy that comes to mind is that if you're speeding down a highway and you've lost control of the car, like what these drugs do is they slow down the car. It makes it even harder to steer, but at least it's going slowly. That can be really helpful if you have people that can guide the car back into the right tracks. But maybe 5% of people who prescribe drugs like that use it that way but that is the domain where it is helpful from what i've learned and that um do not get off of these on your own like there are resources it can be dangerous and just real quick a part of the reason why many of these companies like these pharma companies have been sued to the tune of billions of dollars is that one of the things that they hide is the fact that these are the most addictive chemicals that we have created as a humanity. And that when you start to get off of them, the withdrawal symptoms can be severe. They can be like some of the symptoms of withdrawal is wanting to kill yourself. Like what the fuck is going on there? And for some of the chemicals, for some of the drugs, the withdrawal, like the physiological withdrawal can last for a year. That's yeah, so I, I used to take a bunch of Adderall. I was diagnosed ADHD, whatever that is. I know what it is, like, you know, trauma-wise, but, yeah, it took me about a year to heal heal my, probably still doing it to heal my adrenal, adrenal glands and all that kind of shit, for sure, so. Yeah. Fucked. <laughs> but the beautiful thing is, like, I feel the light in you, yeah. you know, and it's a miracle, you know, because, like, one of the things to just appreciate is how much sludge was put into you the fact that you're fucking as vibrant as you are it's a testament to other people i appreciate that yeah you said that a lot and i want to go into now like what now we have a whole background of why 
the mainstream approach is problematic. Let's go into the way we can heal now. And for me, going back to your analogy of the of the daemon, is that the more I've actually aligned myself with my purpose, the more I've understood my trauma, the more I've, I've understood that parts of me are coming up, the more it's just vanished. Like just those three things have truly, amongst all the health crazy shit, but at a base level, getting close to my purpose, very close, understanding it, mm. and understanding my trauma has changed absolutely everything. Yeah, so there's a couple of places to start, and I'm going to put in some tobacco because there's <laughs> going to be a lot of information here, and I'm going to see if I can track it. So I haven't tried to formally articulate what would be my recommendation of what to do to, like, try to do it the right way. So I'm going to spitball and see what comes up. Uh, have you seen the documentary Stutz that Jonah Hill? Absolutely loved it. Really good. Phenomenal. Like one of the most beautiful pieces of art about mental health that Amazing. I've ever seen. Yeah. Go watch that if you haven't. One of the core things that Stutz, the psychiatrist, talks about is when he first sees people, 80% of the work will... 80% of the improvement that they will see from working with him will come from them cultivating their life force energy is what he calls it. And for me, that part is a advanced version of what um, Christopher Palmer, the psychiatrist from Harvard, is talking about. Step one, just do a quick checklist of your life of the things that if you're doing this, you are injuring your life force energy. And if you just stop doing them or do the opposite, you will start to cultivate a life force energy that is almost like it increases how loudly the daemon will whisper in you. So your diet, like this is shit that is not sexy, but if you just take a moment to really feel into it, the most common drug you take is food. Thanks. The quality of your food literally determine the quality of the tissue that your body creates that makes up what you are. And if you think of your body as like a conduit for spirit, like the quality of the conduit will, like a one-to-one -one correlation translate to the quality of what comes through you. And so just learning what type of foods fuck you up? And there's all sorts of nuance about, like, you could try out fasting. You could try to cleanse parasites. You could upgrade your water. There's rabbit holes on rabbit holes. I did, I did elimination over, over time. Right. Worked, yeah. I think the key thing is a low inflammatory diet. So just eat real food. Get clear on what your body body enjoys when it comes to the amount of fat, protein, and carbs, and do that through experimentation, and drink a bunch of good water. But if, if you only just cut out shit that's not real, and you eat a normal American diet, that will absolutely transform a bunch of shit in your life. For sure. The next one, if anyone has been on the internet for the last year, you've heard Andrew Huberman talk about sunlight. Mm -hmm. The sun's a, a god. The sun is an is a organism. It is alive and we depend on it. And there's so many great things that happen in your body hormonally and chemically that if you start to take in sunlight first thing in the morning, you're going to be good. Movement. 
we evolved to walk like I read a study a while ago and we evolved to walk something like 10 or 20 miles a day. And I'm not saying that you have to walk 10 or 20 miles a day, but if you, even if you don't work out, if you just walk for an hour a day, that will change the quality of your life after a week in a way that you won't even believe me until you try it. Mm -hmm. But if you really get into working out, like the antidepressant effects of, of working out a couple of times a week is more powerful than any antidepressant we've ever created. And there are multiple people that have quoted, if we were able to create a pill that had the same effect of working out just a couple of times a week, that would be the most popular and profitable pill ever created by pharma in history. Yep. We have access to that and it's free. Sleep is absolutely huge. And you can check out things from, um, I think Matthew Walker is the sleep doctor yep. guy. If you can get your sleep right, it'll change a motherfucking life. Hot and cold contrast therapy. There was some study that I heard someone talking about that if you submerge just your face in ice water, each day and you get up to a couple of minutes, even one minute, that um, it radically improves your sleep because there's something, it's called the mammalian dive reflex, that like when we're in really cold water and, it, and it's on our face, because of the receptors we have in our face, it triggers a bunch of hormonal responses that improve a bunch of shit. So just doing things to increase your life force will be... Huge. Yeah, and the flip side of that is catching what decreases it. Right. Yeah. So, like, uh, one of the things that people do not grasp is that I think it was like 50 years ago, uh, Deep Blue, a computer created by IBM, was the first computer that ever beat a grandmaster in chess. Fast forward 50 years later, whenever you log on to Instagram, you are in a chess like match against a computer that is hundreds of times more powerful than the computer that beat a grandmaster at chess. The grandmaster who played against Deep Blue was knew he was playing a game, was a master at that game, and still lost. When we log on to Instagram, we are going up against a attention-grabbing algorithm. Most of us don't know that we're in a game. We don't know the rules of the game. We don't know that there's an opponent. And the goal is to capture our attention as much as it can possibly do it. And what the algorithms has, have found out is that if you make people angry or horny or afraid, they will stay on that thing and they will just get cheap dopamine until there's like no dopamine left. And so a detox from those things could help tremendously. But so I'm, that's kind of the stuff that's not exciting. And I'll move into the stuff that's it's more like exciting. A, it's like a base level. Right. That people should be, if you're not, that's what the quote this is like, if your psychiatrist isn't asking, if you've done those things first, then you don't have a doctor, you have a drug dealer. 100%. So it's like, you right. just cover those bases first at least. And it goes so far. And like, one of the really strong things that you can do is you can fast. And like, fasting can teach you a lot of incredible things about your mind and your body. And the research on fasting is that if you can do a multiple day fast, the reset it does on your biology is absolutely fucking incredible. But so to get out of that, like baseline stuff, the next level I think is healing trauma. So trauma is a big topic because we all have trauma, all of us. 
Like if you've, if anyone has not heard of Gabor Mate, check out his work, especially if you have ADHD. He has a great book called Scattered. His newest book I read just blew blew my mind. Yeah. So his newest book is called The Myth of Normal. And his core hypothesis in that book is that we live in a toxic culture. To grow up in this culture is to acquire trauma. Mm -hmm. And we are all equal opportunity children of having trauma. We all have it. And one of the traps of trying to heal trauma is to believe, okay, I need to stop going towards what I want in my life and just focus on my past for the next five years and try to heal. Like, that's a trap. There's a psychologist named Victor Frankel. Have you heard of him? Guy who wrote Mad Search for for me? Yes. Okay, so... There was a psychologist who was imprisoned during World War II, and he was in Auschwitz, you know, like the worst prison camp. And, you know, his wife and his children were killed in those camps. The thing that helped him survive that camp was he had a dream, and he he imagined himself teaching a book that he was writing in his head while he was in those camps, teaching people about what happens in those camps and how to survive those camps. And um, when, so he survived Auschwitz and he wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning. And he actually got to live the dream that he was cultivating in that camp where he got to stand in auditoriums and classrooms and teach the lessons that he had learned. One of his famous quotes from that time was that um, the last of of man's freedoms is to choose his attitude in any given situation. Whenever I read that book, I weep. Because, like, if that man can say that sentence in that situation, all of us are being invited to endure whatever it is that we are going through and that there is a way out. But the type of psychology he created after that was called logotherapy. And the essence of logotherapy that was revolutionary from most of the psychological teachings of his time was he believed the best way to live life is to get really clear on what you want to do in the future. And then you go towards that future. And as you go towards that future, you will hit obstacles. Those obstacles will always be because there's something from the past that hasn't been healed. And you only deal with the parts of your past that are currently your obstacle as you go towards your future. Mm -hmm. And that there's this elegance that happens that as you aspire towards your vision, you will heal whatever needs to be healed at the just right time because it will be the thing that will oppose you. And so a really good example of this is like, Every child is born being interested in things that they don't have to be taught to be interested in. Every child has some type of artistic expression that they want to do in the world. And most of us give up on those dreams because we're told, you're, you know, you can't make money that way, blah, blah, blah. Once you start to reconnect to those expressions and you try them out in the world, you will start to face your fears. You know, and you might be afraid of being seen. You might be afraid of failing. You might believe, you know, you're not worthy of X, Y, or Z. But as you start to go towards your goal, like let's say that you want to be a musician. Through the act of creating music, you will start to hit your blocks and your obstacles that will then take you to the things that happened in your past. 
And in just the last probably about 20 years, we've really started to understand how trauma works and how to heal trauma. And it is one of the great, like, tragedies of the last 200 years of psychology that we didn't understand trauma. And, like, um, I'm trying not to go down rabbit holes because I've done a bunch of research on trauma and I have a bunch of things popping up, but try to keep, but to try to keep it concise. Check out the work of, pe of people like Peter Levine. Check out the book, The Body Keeps the Score. And if you read just Peter Levine's work and the, and the Body Keeps the Score, you will get a tremendous treasure trove of ways that you can go about feeling and healing your trauma in a way that will transform it. The third thing that's really interesting is um, to have some type of relationship with God, for lack of, you know, some other term. So, like, what AA has found is that if you can have a, a connection to something divine, that that is one of the key contributors to people being able to, you know, heal their addictions. What's also super interesting is the psychedelic studies that have been done in the last eight years. What they find, and this is something that's really important to connect to, is that most people who entered these studies, the majority of them said that the experience was one of the top five, if not the top one most meaningful experience that they've ever had in their life. And to the degree that they rated the experience meaningful is the degree to which they heal and that the healing effects continue up to eight months plus after they did the experience one to two or at most three times. And what's so powerful about this is that there is no biological mechanism that is still causing the healing to continue eight months later because they're not con continuing to take it. Mm -hmm. What is the cause or the correlation of the healing is the degree of the mystical experience. And so there seems to be something about the human condition that if we experience the mystical, it heals us. And I think that the essence of it is that it, it creates the sense of trust mm. with the unseen world. You know, because most of us, when, if we don't have a connection to something divine at our core, we don't trust the world. We don't trust reality. We don't trust that there's something trying to guide us and help us. We end up, we end up just trying to control everything. Right. In yeah. that control, the most suffering is created. 100%. And then what I would offer, and this is also what Carl Jung found, is that if you find a artistic practice, the act of the artistic practice will heal you in a way that is more elegant than any type of therapy that we have. Like Jung... For sure, I, I had a number of things, of traumas I was ashamed about in my past, and I wrote a collection of short stories just for me, from like a character's perspective, going to the same trauma all the shame was gone and I could actually heal it. So just by doing that, like retelling my stories of shame through like a alternate world of different characters and different mystical beings, I, I, it was the biggest step I took in healing the stuff I was ashamed of. So I completely agree. That is a beautiful story. And like what most people don't realize is that 
Carl Jung's work is one of the most influential works right now in the spiritual space, and most people don't realize that they're even using Carl Jung's ideas, but the idea of the shadow, the idea yeah. of the higher self, the idea that dreams mean anything, the idea of synchronicity, even invented, you know, the, like, concept of the introvert and the extrovert. All of Carl Jung's deep ideas came from a psychotic period that he had in his early 30s know that so so carl jung um i think when he was like 32 he started having hallucinations and he started to hear voices and because he had worked with schizophrenics for so long he learned that there is some message inside of those visions and so what he did for four years he would have these hallucinations and these auditory hallucinations every day he would work every day he would be with his family but then every day in the evening he would go to his room and he would start to paint what he saw and he wrote down the voices that he heard and he put it all in this beautiful book that he didn't share with anyone except for his closest friends and after about four years of him doing this every day the voices and the visions just vanished he spent the rest of his life trying to translate those mythical experiences that then the fruits of him trying to translate those were a bunch of psychological essays that were his entire corpus of work that we all now use in the spiritual space now. When he died, he wrote in his will that he didn't want this book to be released until 50 years after his death because he was afraid that people would read it and then think that he was crazy and that it would nullify his work. That 50-year mark ended probably about 12 years ago, and what was published is what's called the Red Book. For people who don't know, if you're interested, check out the Red Book and get the large version because the large version has his pictures. This dude hand-wrote in calligraphy all the visions or all the auditory hallucinations he saw, and he painted by hand in this beautiful book the visions that he saw mm -hmm. the visions look like ayahuasca visions and he never did ayahuasca it did just come out recently that he very likely when he came and visited the pueblo indians and in, i believe arizona that he did peyote probably but that's probably the only psychedelic he ever did what he ended up believing was that if you could get anyone so but back in his time, the catchphrase word for people who had any type of psychological illness was called a neurotic. And he has a quote, and it's like, if you can get the neurotic to make art, they will heal themselves. And I truly believe that, like, your story is such a perfect example of this, is that if you can begin to create art from whatever it is that you think makes you sick, you will find that there's a message in the illness in the sickness that becomes alchemized through the creation of art and some scientific research on this that, that i think is really potent is that there's a body of um psychological literature called expressive writing and what they find is that uh if you get people to write expressively which just means you don't edit anything you don't ever show what you write to anyone else and you just write until the time is up if you write for 20 minutes a day for four days in a row about anything in your past that still haunts you 
by the time you complete those four days of writing for the next year, you will go to the doctor half as often as you did the year before. Um, if you have PTSD or depression, your scores on those will be reduced. If you have sleeping problems, you'll sleep more deeply. If you have arthritis, the degree that your joints can move will improve. They've even done studies that found that you're more likely to get hired if you're unemployed and that you will score higher on like intelligence tests if you do this. And the idea is that you don't even have to tell anyone. If you just admit it to yourself about the things that haunt you in your past, it will heal you in a way. And the mechanism that I think is happening is that anything that we have shame about and or anything that's happened in our past that we're confused about why it happened, a part of our consciousness is trying to get us to understand it and that that actually eats up energy like that would help us repair ourselves if we were able to reduce it. And just the act of writing it can heal it. The, the more advanced step is if you... So there's research on loneliness. And what they have found with loneliness is that if you report yourself as being lonely, you're more likely to die early than if you smoke a pack of cigarettes every day, than if you're an alcoholic, than if you are obese, and you're more likely to die early than if you live in a place with high air pollution. And that loneliness is not about not being around other people. Loneliness is about you don't feel there's even one person that you can be your true, but that really hears you and sees you. And what allows for people to feel seen and heard is to have even one person in their life that they can tell the truth to. And so whatever it is that you're able to write down, if you have even one person in your life that you can share those things with, it alchemizes that sense of loneliness. And loneliness is one of the things that's killing people in our culture right now. Mm -hmm. And loneliness is alchemized if you can be brave by being vulnerable. And this act of turning your pain into art, if you share that art. Yeah. What you're saying is that it's a process of the more you're able to tell the truth to yourself through your journaling, through your art, that can transcend your ability to be honest with others and be seen. And that will actually help you deal with the pain of the loneliness. So exactly. On that note, we have to take a quick break, um, but we'll get keep going into it next. I'm going to give you a break to digest all this amazing information, and in this break, please like, comment, and subscribe. Thank you. Returning to the topic of journaling and expressing your truth, what would you recommend for people to do if they're starting the journaling process? Like what's the most powerful way to engage in that practice to heal ourselves? So for me, what worked the best was uh, when I was like 21, maybe I was 22. Um, no, I was probably about 24 actually. My first major relationship had just ended. We had been together for four years. And the day that she moved out, I had a back spasm mm. and I couldn't walk for five days. It was truly like rock bottom. Like I literally laid on the floor for five days on day two of not being able to 
walk, I listened to a podcast with Tim Ferriss where he mentioned a book called The Artist's Way. And I'd never heard about this book and I just felt the compulsion to buy it. And so with the magic of Amazon, that book arrived at my house the following day and I started to read it and I had like a religious experience where the essence of that book is to journal every day, first thing in the morning, whatever is on your mind for three pages. And I just happened to have bought a very big, large journal where it took me almost an hour to write three full pages by hand, but I knew that I needed to do this. And so I started a process of just writing to myself each day. And within a month, like my entire relationship with myself had transformed. I realized that before I started journaling, I had, I had not a single practice in my life where I could take the time to genuinely be honest with myself about what I felt. What I realized after a month of doing this journaling is that I had fallen out of love with my partner two years ago and I was too much of a coward to even admit it to myself. And I really hurt her because I was in the relationship and I was already gone and I didn't even realize it. I also realized that I didn't like almost any of my friends, but it was because I didn't know how to be honest with any of them. Yeah. So all the friends that I had were just friends that had the same coping patterns that I had. Like I had the friends I'd smoke weed with. I had the friends I'd play video games with. I had the women that I would like, you know, they would touch my genitals. I would touch theirs, but we never actually connected with each other. And then I had like the people who I would just be around while they talked shit about other people. Like those were Same all here. my friends. Same here. Yeah. And um, I also realized that I uh, was mad at my body, you know, that I didn't trust my body, that I was afraid of my body. And... Through that journaling each day, like what the artist way does is e you read a chapter each week and at the end of each chapter, she gives you like uh, quests to go do. And they're all very interesting. And I started to do them. And by the time I completed that first journal, that's when I discovered Jung. That's when I started exploring my dreams. That's when I started like writing as a writer with the dream of being a writer. So that's when like, I really started to like write for my website and I, it changed everything. But the main thing that it did, the most important thing that it did is it, it, I cultivated the habit of being honest. And so I eventually met my first friend that I could actually be honest with. And it's so incredible. It's one of those things that like, if you eat bullshit your entire childhood, you don't know what it feels like to feel healthy until you eat clean for a week or two. And you're like, oh my God, I'm allowed to feel like this. Mm -hmm. And then from that point on, you now want to eat healthy because you want to feel that way. It's like that with friendships. As soon as you taste a true friendship, you're like, oh my God, I never want to go back to what it felt like before I had this. And so once I had one true friend, I then had four and then 10. And now I live in a, in a atmosphere where like I can be a true friend to a stranger because yeah. it's, it's just the default and it's what I want. The other thing that it um, helped me start to do is it like, as I got, as I learned the practice of being honest, I then got the opportunity to start to like have really hard convos with people. Mm -hmm. 
But it also, it started to connect me to the whisper. Like, I think one of the ways that we diminish the whisper the most is by lying, both to ourselves and for sure to other people. And the thing that's super interesting to feel into is that if you actually feel into what's the best possible thing that can happen if you successfully lie to someone, especially if it's like a friend or someone that you're trying to date. Best case scenario is that you create a lie that they believe, but now everything that they do, it will always feel like it doesn't make contact with you because it's, re- it's in response to the mask that you put up and you will actually always feel lonely. Mm-hmm. Like that's best case scenario is if they believe the lie, you have guaranteed that you won't have a true relationship with them because they don't see you. And that's why this whole dating game is so interesting. Like we're in this world, we think dating seduction. What does seduction mean? Like you're putting on a persona to try and match what the person, you think the person needs from you. It's like this constant game of lying and people are, are, are taught and encouraged to do that. Right. To make to gain intimacy, which is the craziest thing ever. Like you want to get intimate by not being intimate with yourself by putting on a mask. Yeah, so I hear you. Yeah, and the thing that's going on there is that those people who get seduced by the idea of seducing are people who actually don't want intimacy. They want conquest. Mm. And yeah. that will erode your soul until you wake up, you know, because As soon as you treat other people as objects, you you are denying your soul what it feels like to actually be in intimacy. And it's that it's that thing where it's like food, where it's like if you don't know what it feels like to eat clean, you don't even know what you're missing. But there's something in you that's like whispering at you, like this is not right. This is not so right. You're under the impression for people who are maybe like single and lonely, don't have friends, trying to make them. You'd recommend for anyone really just to, it sounds cliche, but just to keep being you, just to really honor that uniqueness and that people reject you, it just, you wouldn't have been able to enjoy anyway. So it's just really honor that individuation through that experience of making friends and having romantic partners. Yeah. It's um like one of the things that's interesting is it's like, take a moment to look at your last five relationships. Is there a pattern? The fact that they're your past relationships, there's at least one pattern, which is that it ends. Do those people respect you after it's ended? Do you classify them as crazy or stupid or like men love to call their exes crazy and women love to call their exes narcissists or psychopaths or whatever. And it's like, do you want to keep getting that result? If so, keep doing what you've been doing. You know, that there's this thing in like, to the degree that you are unwilling to change is the degree to which life has to punch you in the fucking face <laughs> to wake you up. You know, like spiritual transformations don't have to be violent, but they tend to be violent if we're, f- if we're stubborn. Mm. And the thing that's interesting is to the degree that your ego is successful and competent tends to be the degree to which the transformation has to be violent. My story. Right. So like people who get good at seducing because they're good at it, they will likely have to experience much more pain than people who aren't good at it. 
because the people who aren't good at it will eventually get to the point where like this isn't working for sure so i've got to try some other thing and when it comes to dating like one of the things to feel into is it's like in the privacy of your own heart if you were to journal you ask yourself do i love myself do i respect myself do i keep my word to myself the answer to all of those aren't yes, you are very likely trying to get that from someone else and you will attract people who are also stuck and it's not going to work. There's this idea in Jungian psychology that's really beautiful and I think this is going to be potent and useful for people who are at that stage where they're like trying to date, don't quite know how it's working. Okay, so check this out. You have lived with you your entire life and you barely know who the fuck you are. Fair. You know, and that's true for everyone listening. So when you meet someone that you're attracted to and you feel like, oh my God, it's like I've known them my whole life. Or, you know, if you're really spiritual, you'll be like, we, we've had past lives together, you know. Mm-hmm. From a Jungian standpoint, what's happening is that all of us have a inner ideal other. It's, it's our inner image of what we imagine our ideal partner will be. The anima is a different. It's actually, it's the projection of the anima. So we actually project our souls. From a Jungian standpoint, your soul is your inner other. So however you present out in the world, it doesn't matter if, you're, if, if, if you have a dick or, or a vagina, Whatever the masculine or feminine energy that you present out in the world that feels like you, you have an inner opposite. And that inner opposite is actually like the personality of how you, your ego, would relate to your soul if you had that integrated. But most of us don't have that integrated. So when we meet someone that we're attracted to, we project our inner other onto them and that's why they feel familiar. Because that's us, that we've grown up with our whole life. And the metaphor that I use to kind of help people understand this is that each person's body and personality is like the frame of a TV. And when we meet a frame that can hold the projection of our inner other, we fill in every pixel on who they are. Because again, you've lived with you your whole life and you barely know who the fuck you are. So when you meet someone and you feel like you've known them your whole life, that is a guarantee that you're doing this process. A quick asterisk, we all do it and it's okay. And it's a part of the beauty of like what it means to fall in love. Because when you rapidly fall in love with someone, it feels like you're in the presence of a God and they make everything feel good and okay. But it's because you're interacting with your anima or your animus, your inner other. What happens for most people is about six to eight months into a relationship with a person that can hold the projection of our inner other, we get to this point where we wake up one day and we're like, they're not who I thought they were. They tricked me. Oh, I'm not in love anymore. It's just gone. And then we either cheat or we start to destroy the relationship or we leave or whatever. And then we just go to the next person who can hold that projection. What has happened is that It takes about eight months of interacting with that other person for enough of the pixels to start to flip from our projection to who they actually are until enough comes through where the whole thing flips. So like if you've ever looked at an optical illusion where it's like 
you know, it looks like it's an old woman with a big nose, but if you look at it long enough, eventually the whole thing flips and it looks like a young woman who's turned away from the camera. That's what happens, is that once enough of the pixels flip, the whole thing flips, and then we feel like we're looking at a stranger. That is actually the moment where we reclaim our inner other, and we actually have the opportunity to start to cultivate a real relationship with a real person. Yeah, my, my past relationship started off with the, with the animal, and I realized it, and it reached that point, then I, I took it as an invitation to actually fall in love. Exactly. That's beautiful. And that's the super mature response that most people don't do. So there is a whole class of people that are addicted to the projection of other people's inner other. And so what that means is that, like, they love to be the mistress to the person who's married. Or they love to be the dude that the woman hits up whenever the relationship is not okay with whoever it is that they're currently with. And they get addicted to being idolized. Because that energy is like religious. Like when people think that we are that for them. And the only way to be that is to not be who we actually are so that we can get that projection of that idolization. And a lot of people who are successful on things like Tinder and Bumble, without them realizing it, they're addicted to being the projection of other people's inner other. For anyone that this resonates with, if you want to do some work on trying to alchemize this, check out the books by Robert Johnson. There's one called She, there's one called He, and then there's one called We. If you're a woman, check out she. If you're a man that wants to understand women, check out she. If you're a dude, check out he. And if you're a woman that wants to understand men, check out he. But everyone can read we. And we is, it's the process of recognizing that projection and how to bring that projection back home. What happens if you, so the projection of your anima or your animus, your inner other, is kind of like a spitting in the face of that force in the seed that's trying to make it a tree because that's what that inner other is. It's like you are projecting your daemon onto some other person. And that to integrate that is to have a personal, intimate relationship with your inner other. And that will basically translate into you being an artist. An artist is someone who has an intimate relationship with their inner other. That's their muse. That's their whisper. That's like, go here today instead of staying at home. Or paint this horizon that you saw in your dream last night. That's also, in terms of the projection, as a writer, me, the best things I've written in the past were when I had a physical muse. But it was just a projection that allowed me to like, through the, the mirror, through, through her symbol, symbolizing my muse, I was able to to do it. But what you're saying is that like you don't even need you don't even need the the external projection. You can just tap into it yourself. The thing that I would offer that I think is a, even a bit more advanced is um remove the word just, you know, because we use the word just as almost a way to gaslight ourselves. It's not just a projection. Like, it seems to be a part of how we work. That when we find someone who is the just right frame for the projection of our inner masterpiece, that 
It happens. Yeah. You can play in that as long as it's true but if you just recognize what it is it can allow you to really enjoy it because it will evaporate eventually and when it evaporates that's when you can start to really do the work to like be with that person but it's a beautiful gift of being a human that we can meet a stranger and they feel like we've known them our entire lives and they ignite our artistic spirit on fire and to be around them is like they're a drug. That's beautiful. But recognize that it's a stage and that it will eventually evaporate in an interesting way and that that's not bad. You know, it's just a natural part of what happens when we fucking fall in love. And it's such a cool thing that we do. You know, it's like, hey, temporarily hold my projection of God so that I can be with God and I can fuck God. Like, that's pretty fucking cool. Yeah, whenever I encounter the people who are super, kind of the rationalists, you know, the academics of the world, the philosophers who are super atheist, like how can you be atheist and believe in love? Right. Yeah. One of the, I wrote a poem once, I don't remember the whole thing, but one of the the lines is, um, all of existential philosophy is left mute in the wake of a sunrise. Like, there are moments where the apprehension of beauty absolutely eviscerates and evaporates the why am I here? What is this all about? And the thing that's so interesting is it's like coming from someone who was that type of person for a long time, I can now look back and recognize my hypocrisy. It's like if you, this is a pretty intense statement, but it's true. If you haven't killed yourself, It is a testament that you believe. Mm -hmm. And every rationalist who's out here saying that there's no meaning, that it's all chance, like blah, blah, blah. Do you listen to music? Have you ever danced? Have you ever made love? You're a hypocrite. Mm. Powerful. So to kind of go in a completely different direction. You know, I love this conversation. We had a dating. It's very deep philosophical take on on dating which is super interesting i wanted to now go into the topic of division yeah of how we can actually i see the biggest problem we're facing in humanity in my eyes i know it's very subjective to me in my experience my trauma growing up and what people think differently to me is how can we unite through division like how can we coexist in this country in this planet with love while we think different things like so the question i want to ask is why from a trauma or a mental or, or a philosophical perspective, why are we so divided right now? What's causing that? And what is the best way to break through, either through a form of communication, inner work? Like, what does that look like? Yeah, so uh, I agree with you that this is actually what I think is the most pressing issue of our time. And I'm going to start from the really high level and then try to come down, but I'm going to get weird for a moment and it might not feel weird to some people listening and it might be like, what the fuck is this dude talking about? So, um, you know, like 65 million years ago, a rock hurtled through space and hit this planet and deeply injured the life on this planet. If you choose to believe that the earth is a conscious organism, that loves its children and its children are all of the things that grow out of her, that walk on her, that feed on her, that reproduce on her. 
When that rock came hurtling through space, it killed and hurt many of her children. And almost as like an evolutionary response, I believe that she started to try to create a creature that would have the capacity for when it matured, that it could protect her and her children from things like that. Mm -hmm. And so she rolled the dice on these monkeys. And these monkeys started to grow the potential to create technology. Language is technology. You know, culture is technology. And that she was willing to run the risk of these monkeys destroying everything because she had faith that they could eventually evolve to a point where they would be the protectors of the whole thing. Mm -hmm. Because they would be the ones that would be able to intercept that hurling rock through space when it happens again. Not if, but when it happens again. If you use the analogy of the body, I would argue that humans are like the neuronal cells of the body, like we're trying to create the nervous system of the planet. And that um, where we are at currently is it's almost like we have an autoimmune response where we attack each other, not realizing that we are of the same body. And then I think the reason why we are so divided right now is actually, it's like, it's what happens when a teenager starts to wake up. So when you're a child, you just believe whatever it is that you're told, most of us. It's not until we're teenagers where we start to feel our hormones and shit start to pump through us. And we have to deal with like the darker aspects of our nature. And it tends to make us moody, if you will. I think the emergence of um, communication technologies in the last like 25 years, we are just now getting to the point where we can't run from our shadows anymore. And so people are screaming. And I think as like a humanity, we're like teenagers right now. And that we're having to navigate some aspects of our biology and our evolutionary psychology that uh, are hard to overcome. So one thing that's really interesting is that our stories, to go back to what we talked about earlier, our stories protect us from the chaos that exists in the infinite environment that's around us that we can't comprehend. Like what our consciousness does is it filters out 99.99% of what we could be paying attention to. And my stories about what it means to be a human and a good person allows me to make eye contact with you and to talk. Mm -hmm. But there are hundreds of thousands of things that I could be paying attention to in this room right now, like every shade of blue on every single one of these cubes. You know, if I was on enough Wachuma, that would be the most interesting thing in the world. And I wouldn't even know that you were here. But in my conscious waking existence, I filter all that out so that I can enact the story that feels ethical and right. Our stories protect us from the insanity that would happen if our stories broke down. Like if you've ever had anyone here, if you've ever had a psychotic break, it's because the organizing stories that you use broke down and the flood of the infinite qualia of this present moment came in and you had no idea what to do and it was completely overwhelming. 
our stories, to the degree that they work, they map onto our consciousness almost like they're a limb. And they've actually done studies that people who argue about politics or religion, when they're in a heated argument and they feel like they're being told that they're wrong, their brain will fire as if they're being punched. Their brain is actually registering the critique of their story as a physical attack on their body because their story protects them from what feels like death. And so people are literally defending the feeling of dying if they're unconsciously attached to their story when they have an argument with someone who doesn't agree with them. So that, that's one frame. I think the task of our time is to learn how to cure this autoimmune response that we're having as a humanitarian body because our like our purpose is to evolve to the point where when there's a meteor coming, we can re respond to it. Or where we're able to heal an ecological disaster because we are the ones with thumbs and can speak and we can create ideas. So that's one frame. To come down to what most people experience in their life, unless you're a politician or an activist, and like a true activist, not just a person who's an activist at parties after people are drunk and you've had some cocaine and you're arguing with someone that you don't actually like about things that you don't do anything about. Mm -hmm. But unless you're an actual politician or an activist or you're some type of like union leader or something, 99.99% of the conversations about politics that have happened in the history of time are people who are working out trauma and attachment wounds with other people using the abstraction of politics to try to either get power or to defend themselves. Mm -hmm. So what I mean by that is every conversation that I've ever had with anyone about politics ever in, in my personal life have been with people who don't do a goddamn thing to change any of those things, but they like to talk about it a lot. And all of them are people who have not yet seemed to have found their purpose in life. They're often working jobs they hate. They're really disgruntled about their relationship with their parents. And that, like, just to give a couple of examples, um, everyone that I've ever talked to in person who was really deep into conspiracies, um, almost all of them had some really deep trauma with their dad. And either their dad wasn't there or their dad was abusive or their dad wasn't emotionally available. And they tend to project that onto, you know, government. Now, a really quick asterisk. Do people conspire? Yes. Have there been conspiracies that were conspiracies that then it was revealed that they actually happened? Yes, absolutely. Not arguing that. But if your personality, if your identity is that you're a conspiracy theorist, I think that there's some other trauma mm -hmm. happening there that hasn't been faced. And then there's people who like, um, this might be getting too esoteric. I don't know what your audience is into, but there's... I'm, I'm as crazy woo -woo as it gets, so cool. go, go deep. <laughs> so there's a whole group of people who believe that like, they believe in the Gnostic idea that we are inside of a false universe and that this is all fake 
and that the God that we all believe that created this universe is actually a demon that like broke away from God and that all of this is a trap. Um, those people tend, at least in my experience that I've talked to, they tend to, um, actually all of them, I know probably about six people who I'm close to who have some version of that story. All of them are young men who are smart, who have a deep artistic yearning to do something meaningful and don't believe that they can do it. And so they've created this whole architecture about why it's actually all fucked up. This doesn't matter. And it's not useful. And the... There's, you know, a quote like uh, the argument with your spouse about the dishes. It's never about the dishes. What I've practiced in my life is um, whenever people bring up politics or conspiracy theories or religious ideas or whatever the fucking thing is, I imagine I'm looking at a child who is drawing a crayon drawing and trying to present it to their parent. And they're used to receiving the response from their parent of like, that's wrong. And if I can, instead of feeling like I have to defend my position or I have to like fight off their position, I've just totally changed the lens to feel into, okay, what would I do if my child brought me a crayon drawing from school? Would, would I critique my child's crayon drawing? No, what I would do is I would ask him, ooh, what's this? Why do you use green here? Have you ever thought about trying to add this here? And I would just completely enter his world or her world and see from her eyes and just try to understand. Yeah, such a powerful analogy because I, I went to one of the top colleges in the U.S. and I, would, I, I thought that you had the smartest people there, right? But it was was the most traumatized in the sense that you couldn't go into class and state an alternative position, right? I couldn't go in there and say I didn't get the COVID vaccine, right? If I did that, I'll get stabbed and put at the at the with flame and throw rocks, right? Because every single one of those kids had a father who was highly intelligent, exactly. who was a tiger parent who needed them to be intelligent, that every class, every paper, every discussion, as you said, is a chance to say, hey, please, I need your approval of this thing I think of because it's the only way for me to love myself, right? I only can love myself if you think this idea is smart, right? So me coming in and being like, hey, I don't agree with most shit on, on the mainstream side of things. I now am a threat to your whole identity, right. right? I threaten your whole way of loving yourself. I embody, I embody the symbol of you hating yourself now. So it's super interesting you say that and the, your strategy of doing that is amazing. So why don't you take me in now? Okay, let's say it's a debate, right? Let's say... You're left, I'm right. I'm not saying that's the case. I'm just saying theoretically, right? And I say something that I'm super passionate about, you don't agree with. Without, without all those stories amazing, like what do you actually like say in those moments right. to reduce the fire, to, to spread love? Like what, right. what forms of communicating words do you use to enhance love and reduce the, the, the fire? So what I'll do is I'll tell a story of, because I've now done this, you know, like a handful of times and almost every time it results in the other person crying and, and them crying in a way where it's healing, not because I've hurt them. So I'll give a story. And while I give that story, think of an actual thing that you'd like to go back and forth on and I'll do it in real time. So the first time I tried this, 
And I didn't even realize that I was doing it, but I could just feel that like it needed to be done. I was in college and I was having a party at my house and we had like a philosopher's couch in the garage where we would all smoke weed and like talk about cool things. And there were probably about like six or eight of us in there. And my friend was a waitress and her waitress friend brought her partner who was um, a Marine, you know, and, you know, this was like 12 years ago. So I was deep on the left. I thought, you know, like anyone on the right is an idiot. I've I basically have swapped. But (laughs) um, we got to talking about guns and what I could feel very early on was that like the energy in the room was people knew that like I was the linguistic smart one and like, you know, I'd mop this dude with the floor (laughs) type of thing. And I could feel like I didn't have the words for it then, but I could feel that he had gone through trauma because he had gone to war and I could kind of like feel like the, the, I could feel how good his heart was. I could feel how fragile his neurology was. And I could feel how he was, arguing for a thing that he didn't know why he believed and like the goodness of his heart and the fragility of his nervous system was just enough to like spark this like oh i don't have anything to prove here i'm going to actually try to help and i think because i come from a family where almost everyone was in the army that like that's like a spot in my heart that i like it felt like my brother what happened was is like we started to talk about the pros and cons of guns and I could feel him starting to get like agitated and um I don't remember exactly what I said but it was something I I remember what the tone was and the tone was like I was on his team and I was trying to understand like um did your dad believe in this or did you get this from your mom and then like he would answer that question but the key was the tone it wasn't what I was saying The, the tone was like I'm like, I'm inside with you and I'm trying to see like, um, like, you know, like, have you had an experience where you were at war and because you had a gun, you were able to help someone, you know? And like, it was like four questions with that tone of I'm on your team where he started to like cry. And I like the whole energy of the convo changed and we became homies. Whereas like, the like spectators wanted it to be a debate and they wanted to like see me beat him. I could feel that that was kind of the vibe and I could feel that he could feel that too. But because of all those things, I was able to just like step into the thing. I'll give one more example that's more recent so I can remember it a little bit more clearly. I was talking to a dude who um, was really smart. You know, he's probably in his early 30s He had a psychotic break when he was younger and he like went and lived on the land and lived alone and away from people for a while. And he really wanted to get my take on that Gnostic idea that we're inside of like a hell. Mm -hmm. And it was also the, the same type of environment where there were a bunch of people listening and I could feel that they wanted to hear what I would say in response to him. And it kind of felt like it was like almost a lot like that first one. Yeah. And so he asked me a question and he was like, you know, if as above, so below is true and we farm animals so that we can kill them and eat them, how do we know that we are not the animals of some higher thing that's just trying to like farm us to eat us? 
And like, I could feel that what he, like, it's so interesting. I could feel that his psychosis wanted to get me to agree with it. And that if I did, it would just hurt him more. Yeah. And so like what I, over the course of like 20 minutes, what I tried to do is I like, um, at first I wasn't good, you know, cause at first I was kind of like annoyed because I was like, you're taking as above so below and just looking at one aspect of reality and then saying that that's what the ultimate reality is like, but also like look at a flower, mm-hmm. you know, and it's like, have you ever seen like a flower bloom, you know, as above so below, we could just be flowers, mm-hmm. you know, like bees come and love on us to spread us. And maybe that's what the things up above are, but I could feel that none of that was like tracking. Is there a word for that? Is there a word for that kind of language where, generalize like one specific thing for a whole that concept or am I being yeah wrong? so it's called um so in cognitive behavioral therapy there's 10 cognitive distortions that people most commonly use to kind of like lie to themselves and um what he was doing was a combo of what's called black and white thinking and then also what's called um uh the logical policy term for it but that's not the same word that they use in cognitive behavioral but the logical policy word for it is called a snowball effect it's like if a then z and you just skip all the other ones you know and so it's just like bruh (laughs) but it wasn't until i stepped into his experience and he could feel that i actually was holding the possibility that what he spoke of was true that he started to like attune to me and once he attuned to me i was able to like the key moment was um like if you're in a combo like this bring it back to their life and so what i asked him was when was the first time in your life that you felt like this was all a lie and he told me that um you know, when he was like 18, he fell in love with this girl who was the daughter of a preacher and that like they weren't allowed to have sex until they got married. And that the first time that he met the preacher, the preacher took him into the garage and like berated him and was like, like, uh, my daughter is pure unless you, you know, like start to come to church and, you know, like start to believe all the things that I believe. Of course, that's not how he spoke it. Um, you are not worthy of being with her. And then they would, whenever he and that girl would hang out, they would start to make out and like touch on each other and they would always feel a tremendous amount of shame. And he felt like he had to believe in this shitty version of God that this preacher was trying to force on him in order for him to be able to have sex with a woman for the first time, you know? And it wasn't until I like got to that story And then I started, like, I did some Jungian shit where I was like, okay, if you took that Gnostic story as a dream and I was to interpret your dream, I would say that the, like, demiurge that you were afraid of was the version of Christianity that this pastor was trying to force on you. And the goodness of your own heart could feel like that's all a lie. And that you're still, for whatever reason, harboring that story as like 
that's the story that you're trying to rebel against. And I think it's good that you're trying to rebel against that story because that story is bullshit. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until like I started to get into that dream where I could feel him start to be like, oh, because he could feel that I was like on his team and we were both trying to fight off that shitty story. You know, and so the key is like, especially if you're a man listening or if you have masculine energy and you have a partner, if you guys start arguing about the trash or the dishes and you don't realize that it's about like you haven't slept with her in a few days or like you guys haven't gone out on a date and you think it's about the trash, to the degree that you beat her because you're more logical, you lose. Because you just now have an upset partner who feels not heard and not seen. But if you can actually use that as an invitation to, okay, what's the deep, vulnerable truth that you might not even be able to make contact with? That's really the root of this thing. That's when you can actually have a conversation that's worth anything. Because, again, if you're at a party with someone who's a bartender and you guys have both been drinking and you guys are arguing about capitalism, <laughs> you are in a trap. You and them are completely bullshitting yourself, you know? Yeah, so powerful, man. If I were to summarize it to try and give people a practical way of applying this is to don't look at the belief itself. Don't look at the trigger about you have about the belief. Look at why the belief, why they need to have the story to satiate a wound in their body. As a curious investigator, look in that lens. Talk to them in a way for your own curiosity. Is like, why do they believe this thing? Why do they need it to feel whole? And try and see it as like a lens to understand the human condition. 100%. And that way of, of communicating will reduce the charge of division beautifully. So that's a good note to end because that thesis right there could be thesis for so many myths or tales told in, in reality so i want to thank you for sharing that. i want to thank you for all the beautiful truth bombs you dropped today and ask and answering like the questions i asked today are the, like the hardest questions i have about life period and you answer them beautifully so beautiful. thank you very much man i really appreciate having you on here this was great you're doing something great and congratulations on your life man i can tell that you've really done some good work and that you've you got a good much. heart and a good mind and it's just going to be more and more dope thank you very much man I appreciate it. Yeah, brother.